What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the podcast. This episode is brought to you by... Okay, now, who is my guest today? My guest is Randall Frakes. He is one of the unsung heroes of my favorite filmmaker of all time, James Cameron. Back when the podcast, if you're familiar with the history of the podcast, back when it was Terminator 101, I had initially reached out to Randall to try to get him on, and I think health complications prevented him from coming on, and almost an entire year later, I was able to get him on and kind of check him off as one of those guests that just escaped me and got away. So this is a really fun one-on-one. I think you guys are going to really, really enjoy it, specifically if you're a fan of James Cameron, if you're a fan of film, if you're a fan of writing, if you're a fan of, you know, really trying to, um, you know, just pursue what you love. Everything that Randall talks about is, you know, very inspiring, very motivational. And I think, uh, I think you'll get something out of this one. So get ready, get set. It's Randall Frakes. What is going on, everybody? Welcome back. I am going to attempt to get Randall Frakes on the line here. So you're going to hear sort of the process. I think from here on out, if I have a remote guest, I'm going to do it this way. I think it's cool that you can you can hear the uh, the phone ringing and whatnot. So here we go. Let's cross our fingers and hope that we can get Randall Frakes on the line. Hello. Hey, Randall. You got me. I gotcha. Holy yeah. crap. Yeah. How's it going? Good, good, good. Getting fully conscious. Okay. Did I catch you at yeah. a bad time? No, it's a good time, actually. Okay. Except for the dogs barking in the background. Yes, I do hear it. <laughs> yeah, you're fine. You're fine. Hey, hey, hey. Chill. I'm coming down the stairs. You are barking at the front door. Hey, hey, hey. I have four dogs. Wow. Five cats. Hey. Stop, 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 stop. There's nobody. I was going to say, was it because the phone rang? <laughs> oh, I know. It's a delivery. Oh, okay. No. No. Anyway, so you want to do this now? Yeah. Do you want to? Um, I don't know if uh, if you have uh, uh, some free time to, because uh, I am recording. I wanted to make sure that uh, I was recording just in case I did catch you. Um, yeah. Awesome. Sweet. So, uh, um, for everyone listening, this is a fun kind of little story about how this all happened because. Uh, Almost close to a year ago, we're coming up on I think the year mark. I reached out to you, and and uh, this was when I was doing strictly uh, Terminator 101, and um, I was like, I want to get you on because I mean, you're Randall Frakes. You you are uh, you know you're very closely associated to James Cameron. You've um, 
you've written a few books that uh, are associated with him, and I want to get you on. And and we scheduled it, and uh, some stuff happened that uh, conflicted, and and then I kind of transitioned out of the Terminator 101 because I felt like it was too restrictive, and now I can do anything with this podcast. Yeah. So, um, and then I reached back out to you, and and, and uh, here we are now. So. Um, I guess I want to start uh, at the beginning as much as uh, as as possible because I find it really fascinating because I'm actually looking at uh, some of the stuff that you've that you've worked on and we'll get to that but um, I think the biggest question is is how did the the association with not only James Cameron but uh, William Wisher who ha- has actually been on the podcast um, how did that all start like how did like how do you guys all know each other. Uh, it's, it's, uh, depends on who's telling the story because, you know, there's different angles to every, you know, different points of view, whoever's telling the story. It's a very Einsteinian concept, but it depends on where you're standing, where you're looking at it, what it is. But, uh, the short version is that I knew I had a, a girlfriend at the time who was kind of this hippie goddess and she was taking a psychology class while I was taking an acting class at Fullerton college. And, uh, we would meet in the quad after the class and have lunch together and talk and everything and then go home. Well, she came out one day with this tall bearded Viking looking guy, which was James Cameron. And, uh, he said, you guys should talk. You guys talk the same talk. She told me later, well, he tried to pick her up in psych class. He admitted to her. The reason why he took psych class is because all the best women show up there. And, uh, so, uh, he tried to pick her up and she said, you sound just like my current boyfriend. You guys should meet. So she brought me out to him and we met. And, uh, uh, you know, it was like two dogs sniffing a bone. You know? Interesting. Okay. So that's how you met James Cameron. And then when did, uh, when did Bill Wisher come into the picture? Well, he was actually, he knew Jim before I did. And I met uh, Bill when I did a lecture. I came back from the army and I did a lecture on violence at my former high school. My my former English teacher invited me to give a talk about it, and uh, so I gave a demonstration where I pulled a knife on one of the students, a real knife, and I said, now, who's going to stop me from cutting her carotid artery and killing her? Who's going to stand up and do that? Nobody did. Uh, And it's just like I was saying, okay, we all like to think we're heroes, but we never know for sure until we're in that situation what we're actually going to do. And if any of you tried to do anything and I were really going to hurt her, I could have easily killed her before you even took one step. So you were wise not to do anything. But then what is the solution to this situation? So then we talked about that. So Bill Wish was in that class and he went, that's really neat. This guy's really crazy. So he, he said, uh, I had to meet him. So he did talk to me after class and he told me that he was an artist. He was a pretty good sketch artist and uh, that he wanted to write movies. And he had a, a Western that he hadn't edited yet. It was like uh, influenced by Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid that he shot in Super 8. And he showed it to me. And I said, I'll cut it for you. And I cut it for him. And he went, no, oh, I wouldn't have cut it that way. But it's actually pretty good. And so then we became friends because of that. And then we found out later we both knew James Cameron from different angles. He knew Jim Cameron's first wife before they were married. She was at high school. And uh, he just knew her as a friend and uh, Sharon. And... Uh, so we had this mutual friend named James Cameron, who we both thought was like a, a budding genius, which he was at the time. And uh, so 
he said, well, I want to break into the movie business somehow. I want to, I want to work in the movie business. And I suggested you should be a director. And he said, why? And he said, because you're a sculptor and a painter and, you know, rhythm and you love music. And these are all the need requirements you need to uh, put together a pastiche called motion pictures for mass media. And he said, well, how do you get to be a director? And I told him to write a script and attach yourself to it. So good that they have to let you direct it. He said, that'll work. And I said, that should work. Worked for people like John Carpenter. I said, well, what should this script be? And I said, well, let's go look at in the Daily Variety and the Hollywood Reporter and look at the last 10 years. What were the top five films? What was the genre? It turned out the top five film genre for every year for the previous 10 years was either fantasy or science fiction and uh, with horror elements. And so I said, so we should do something that has horror, something that has science fiction elements, and something that doesn't cost too much money to make first time out. And then write it so it's a real crowd-pleasing commercial thing. And he said, well, what would that be? So we started talking about it. And I said, okay, there's two things we've got to think about. Unity of opposites, which is the idea that whatever the main character is, the villain has to be almost exactly opposite. And he said, like what? And I said, like life and death. And he said, life and death? I said, yeah, you got to personify that in your character. And he said, well, what would be death? And I said, well, like in Halloween, John Carpenter's Halloween, there's this unstoppable figure who represents death. And you can't stop him. You can't bargain with him. He's basically going to take you when he wants to, and there's nothing you can really do about it. Can't run, can't hide, that kind of So we've got to have a villain like that. And he said, well, what would that be? And I said, I don't know. And he said, well, what would life be? And I said, well, I don't know. What's more, what would represent more life than a pregnant woman? He goes, pregnant woman? I said, yeah, so a pregnant woman has to fight some kind of serial killer. And I said, well, not a serial killer, something better than that. Because we have a science fiction element. So we just started developing it, tossing the ball back and forth, conceptually like that. And he's the one that told me about the fever dream he had when he was, uh, uh, you know, finishing a, a piranha tooth spawning in Italy, that he had this dream of a, of a um, man coming out of a, a car accident, a burning car, and uh, he stopped in the dream. He pulled over to see if he could help, and the man staggered out of the car on fire, and his flesh burned away, revealing a chrome skeleton underneath. And I said, well, that's cool. That's a cool image. He said, so what if the, the killer, the, the thing representing death, is a robot. And I said, well, that's great, because that's like, that is like death. You know, it's a machine that's designed to kill you. That's great. That's a great villain. And he said, yeah. And I, but I said, well, wait a minute. It, it, this is a modern day story to keep the budget down. It's all modern day. It stays in place modern day. How are we going to say that there's, this technology exists? And he says, well, what if it comes from the future? And I said, genius. That's it. That solves it. That's the story. That's essentially it. And I told him to run with it, go off and run with it. I knew he was just a talented guy. I'd read some of his prose, early prose. He'd written for a, a book called Necropolis. He was trying to write a science fiction book. And uh, he was a really mature writer for his age. He was only 19 at the time I met him. And um, so he went off and he did a couple drafts. And he came back and we went over it again. And I said, man, this is really good. Jim, I think this is exactly what you need to establish your directing career at least a writing career. And uh, so what happened is he finally said, asked me to write the script with him, but I couldn't because I was doing a bunch of other things at the time. And I said, look, 
every time I suggest something new, like I'm just gilding the lily, it doesn't seem to really add that much to it. I like it's all so wholly visualized. I think any contributions anyone else could make would just dilute it. I think you should try at least try a first draft by yourself, and I'll help you with the second draft if you need it. Went off and wrote the first draft, came back, and they said, "You don't need any help. This is freaking great." You know, so. Uh, and then he got an agent off of that script, and then he started writing. Uh, you know, he got got a um, just from that one screenplay, he got uh, a reputation of being a good writer, and he got uh, the Rambo assignment, Rambo uh, First Blood Two, and then he got uh, the Aliens assignment, Alien Two, and he did all that before Terminator, and then when uh, they saw how well he did with Aliens and and um, and Rambo, they said, okay, you can direct, you can direct Terminator. So, okay, so uh, just let me stop you right there because um, for a second, like when you were talking, I thought you were talking a little bit about, and I just want to pick your brain about it because um, you, uh, you, Bill, and uh, James are all associated to this, and it's uh, uh, Xenogenesis. Um, yeah. What is it about Xenogenesis? Because that comes out in uh, 1978, correct? Yeah, around then we did it in '77. Okay, and that was a that was the first project we did together officially. Tried to see if we could work together and how it would work out. It was based on a short story of mine I wrote called "I Wince in Limbo," and uh, about a, a, a woman who uh, steals aboard a a starship that's going to uh, try and find a new place to colonize embryonic remnants of humankind because the Earth is about to be destroyed by a rogue black hole. And uh, so they know everyone's going to die. So they put the ship together hastily. It was supposed to be an unmanned ship, and they retrofit it at the last minute. And uh, this girl, who's the daughter of one of the scientists who helped retrofit the ship, sneaks on board so she can survive too. And goes into cryosleep. And uh, the pilot is this young character who uh, has this extrasensory uh, hypersensitivity motion and mass and he he's able to uh, navigate the ship out from away from the rogue black hole and use its gravity well to uh, slingshot them to the Pleiades cluster where there's a whole bunch of possible planets that could be Earth-like and then they have to explore the planets planet by planet to find one that can be used to uh, colonize to have a new Earth that was the story that I wrote and uh, and Jim said let's do that let's Let's write a script on that, and let's try and get that made. This was after Star Wars had come out. We both seen Star Wars, Chinese theater in Hollywood, and went, holy crap, they're doing it. They're doing the thing we are always envisioning. They're, somebody's actually doing it, and if he's doing it, sooner or later somebody else is going to do it. we got to get in on this thing. The time is now, so we scrambled and wrote that script together. That was the first major project we did. Was the idea... Sorry, was the idea always to, like from that point on, were you guys always trying to, um, were you going into it trying to always collaborate? Like, were you trying to be a, like a writer-director duo kind of deal? Not consciously, no. It wasn't, we never sat down and said, let's, let's do a partnership and just keep doing this stuff until we break through. It was just project to project. We just said, uh, hey, I, I like that short story. Or so let's adapt that. Let's make that into a thing. You can write it with me. And I said, okay, let's do it. And uh, Jim was Jim was primarily in most of these projects we were doing. He was the motivator. We were we were like we being Bill Wisher and I and uh, um, 
Bob Garrett and a couple other people were involved with us at times, were like uh, dreamers. And But Jim was saying, okay, let's now find a practical way to make these dreams real. And Jim had been work, had been working as an engineer, uh, a, a tool and die caster, you know, someone who was able to eyeball incredibly small tolerances without measuring them, just eyeballing them. He was really good at it. And he had an engineer's mind where he likes to take things, take the elements of life apart bit by bit, look at it, polish it up, and reassemble it. That's how he understands things, learns things. And uh, he had that ability even then. And so he was the guy who basically said, okay, where do we get money? How do we get money? And then we, we found a friend who found us some money from a, a consortium of Orange County dentists who were investing their profits every year in wild things. And they had $70,000 left. And we said we wanted to make this short movie that would be used to try and sell the whole screenplay. And uh, it was just one scene from the screenplay which we did. And uh, the funny thing is it had a lot of stop motion in it. And uh, the first offer we got was from the Pillsbury Doughboy commercial makers saying, hey, you guys want to animate the Pillsbury Doughboy? <laughs> and Tim and I looked at each other. They went, nah, that's not the path we want to follow. So uh, we held out until we got jobs doing effects work for Roger Corman on Battle Beyond the Stars in 1980. And, uh, then we officially were working together as part of the team with him doing special visual effects the old-fashioned way, all in camera. And that was an interesting uh, education. It occurred to me, though, after a while that I was not cut out for effects because I'm too impatient. I want to tell the whole story. And I, I, I don't want to spend six months doing one shot. You know, that lasts for 13 seconds on screen. So I stopped doing that past a certain point and went off on my own and started writing uh, screenplays for low-budget B-movie thrillers and direct-to-video thrillers. And, of course, I did the notorious Hell Comes to Frogtown with Donald G. Jackson. And uh, put me on the map. I'm not sure what map, though. <laughs> you know, what in. But, you know it, was, it was designed to be a satirical send-up of Planet of the Apes and uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles sort of combined in a weird combination. And some people thought it was supposed to be taken seriously, and they thought, oh, well, this is crap. But the people that got the joke really enjoyed it, and it became a cult hit. And it's still being released over and over again. Uh, some new video company, I think it's called uh, Vinegar Syndrome, the British company. They just did a Blu-ray release. It's really excellent. It has a almost an hour-long interview with me talking about the history of uh, the making of that film. That's that's interesting because uh, like the whole B movie territory is really fascinating to me because it sounds like you know it would be something that um, you wouldn't necessarily as a filmmaker would want to kind of go into that territory but it sounds just like the way you're talking about it it sounds like you have this this kind of um, uh, like you're like 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 you're in a way proud of it are you? Well, I was. That, oh, you were. that whole era has, has sort of collapsed economically and become a non-functional uh, aspect of film. Independent filmmaking now is very different how it's funded and what the content is but uh, and the distribution and all that. But, you know, because the industry has changed because of delivery systems, uh, streaming services and all that, it's all different now. So you could never do what we did. But back then, that was the doorway. That was one of the major doorways into the big times. That was the way prove yourself 
you know, it's the equivalent of getting someone to pay you to make a short film to prove your talent so that you'd be noticed and be given other assignments over the years. And uh, so that was that was it. That was the way to do it. And uh, you know, almost every major filmmaker that's ever been a household name currently even started doing horror movies for Roger Corman, American International Pictures, way back when. So uh, that was a common pathway. And so it would be natural that we would use it. And also, we were both, Jim and I and Bill Wisher, were influenced by these movies growing up, seeing them in the drive-ins and on TV. You know, just the other day, I was watching a movie that was made in 1946 by Warner Brothers. It was one of their B-movies. One of their companion features, Peter Lorre, The Beast with Five Fingers. It's just like an incredibly bizarre movie. It makes Hell Comes to Frogtown seem almost sane. And, and I remember seeing that on TV as a kid. And I'd forgotten that I, I knew that movie well. And, and uh, when I saw it again, I went, oh, man, that influenced me writing that scene in that movie. Oh, and that, oh, I got that inspiration from this part of this movie. You know? So it's like, um, it, it's just, uh, you know, like Spielberg, he's the same way. He was watching uh, serials, not in theaters, but in TV, you know, Flash Gordon type things. And uh, he and George Lucas were both influenced, that generation was influenced by that kind of stuff. TV watchers. And I was influenced by that too. I watched classic movies from the 30s, 40s, and 50s, the Howard Hawks comedies, the Howard Hawks adventures, Only Angels Have Wings, movies like that, strong female leads, that kind of stuff. That was second nature to me because that was my, my meat potatoes growing up. And uh, so I had a kind of uh, out of my generation, older, more classical look at how scripts were written and how movies were made and what was in them, you know. So I, w I was a little different from the average Joe who would just look at the latest B-movie and not see any history in it and not be aware of how that film got, got to be where it is, why the content is the way it is historically. And uh, so that was the difference. And, and then I talked to Jim about all this stuff. The reason why Jim's female characters are always very strong, at least on some level, is because I talked to him about Howard Hawks women, about how they were still women, but they were very powerful, strong personalities, and they had a lot, a lot. To, they carried the plot as almost as much as the male leads. Uh, he watched a few of those films. He said, "I get it," and he got it. Jim was like that. You give him two or three examples, and he's got it. It's part of the bear trap memory in his mind, and he'll utilize it, pull it out, utilize it when he needs to in any particular thing he's writing. Very true. Yeah, very true. That's that's definitely one of his uh, strongest uh, uh, attributes with his films. But like hearing you talk about this, and uh, you know, having talked, you know, because I love film and 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 I love hearing stories about how people got into the business. And there's something really romantic about the 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 notion, especially back in the day. I don't know about it anymore, but that it sounds like you. Obviously, it's a stretch, but it sounds like you almost could just walk up to these to these studios in a way and and present whatever you had, and that was your real chance right there, like to really kind of prove yourself. Like, there's that great story of uh, like as you mentioned, Spielberg. Uh, Spielberg would like jump onto the Universal backlot and 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 would sneak onto the studio lot and watch like Alfred Hitchcock direct and well, there's a little bit of mythological exaggeration about that story I've learned oh really been from talking to people that know Spielberg yeah that he did it but not exactly that easily in that way and that he was noted
of the universal uh, because of of uh, him going up and talking to people. He was brazen enough to do that, and uh, but he didn't really hide out on. He didn't really have a, an office on the, the the studios. They say he did, like he found an empty office and just set himself up. He supposedly didn't do that. So there's a little bit of fun and, and romanticizing about these stories. And I would use the model of uh, back in my day of getting into film. The model was more not that you could just walk into any studio and say, "Hey, hire me. I'm I'm a young guy who's full of vim and vigor, and I got talent, raw talent. You can help shape it and pay me little money, and it'll all benefit." It was more like the immigrant model of uh, you know a Chinese guy moves into a neighborhood and he, he invites his family to come in, and they invite their relatives to come in, and then they invite their friends. And all of a sudden, you've got a Chinese enclave in the city. It's like uh, James Cameron got the job at uh, Roger Corman first, and uh, as just a modeler, and immediately rose in the ranks because he he would always grab any opportunities that were offered him and run with it to the extreme. And they said, "I need somebody to design." Uh, Corman said, "I need someone to design a mothership that looks like an actual woman." Can anybody do that? And nobody raised their hands for 10 seconds. But Tim immediately raised his hand, not knowing whether he could or not, of course. He says, yeah, I can do it. And he did it. And Corman loved it. And that was used in Battle Beyond the Stars, the, the spaceship with pits, they called it. And uh, um, so once he got to that level, Corman recognized him, knew him among other crew members. He knew him by name, and he knew that he was ambitious, that he was really talented. So. Uh, Jim came to him and said, look, on Battle Beyond the Stars, you got a lot of shots that require matting in alien backgrounds and, and other things. And uh, I got a solution for you that's cheap. Let's do front projection. Corman didn't quite know what front projection is. And Jim only knew because he'd read it from a book I gave him by Eugene Shifton, Justin, who was an early special effects guy who was a master of doing effects in camera. During the silent days, he, had all these, he developed all these techniques, which were still used in the film industry then, not so much now. And um, so he knew about front projection, and he knew what required, and he was an engineer, so he knew he could build it himself, build a rig. So he called me up and he said, hey, want to help me build a front projection rig? And I said, what are you, what are you talking about? He said, they need a front projection rig to battle on the stars. I convinced him that it would work. And I said, sure. So I did, and then I wound up getting a job because he wanted to do something else. I, I wound up getting a job of actually being a cameraman on the front protection rig, shooting alongside the main rig, uh, the principal photography. And I hated it because I didn't want to be a cameraman. I didn't know all the skills you needed to be a cameraman at the time. It was too much consumed, and uh, I was overwhelmed by the job. But I did it because I had to. Turned out they didn't use, they only used like three or four of those shots out of about 50 shots I did because they thought it was too fake. But um, uh, it actually was, you know, state-of-the-art from projection, and it was just beginning to be used in the film industry. And then we used it again. We were able to mount the rig on a boom, big boom, and we were able to do a boom shot uh, from projection rig for the beginning of the Escape from New York, which is establishing the guards on the wall surrounding Manhattan. I was actually one of the guards because they, they ran out of extras, so I put on the guard uniform and walked across the wall while the front projection rig was projecting an image of Manhattan at night with no lights on. 
and and the water around it, which was actually Santa Monica beach water. So we met it together in 70 millimeter. There's a 70 millimeter protection rig, same thing that we used in our close encounters. So um, that was fun. It was certainly an interesting education building that and running it in Canada on that. But again, I was learning day by day what I wanted to do and what I didn't want to do, what I think I had talent for. And that was, I just wanted to be a writer. I didn't want to be a director. I didn't want to be a cameraman. I didn't want to do anything except write the whole thing and then be left alone. You know, I didn't have the temperament to be a director. I would have been a horrible director. So but Jim was very good at that. So that was his ambition. He wanted to be a director. Yes. Um, when did, when did the idea for you and Bill to uh, collaborate on the novelization for the Terminator, which is arguably one of the most, you know, that's probably um, one of the most well-known things for you, correct? Like, like you're the writer of both the first and second novelizations, especially the second one, because you went solo on the Terminator Two novel. Well, that's an that's a, an outgrowth of uh, Jim's interest at the time. Anyway, I don't know how he feels about it now, but at the time, he said, "I want." When I do Terminator, I want you know someone I can trust to not deviate too much from the screenplay as I wrote it. And since you helped me write the damn script in the first place, why don't you do it? And I said, okay. And I'm not sure if I'm available. And he said, well, what if you split up the work with another writer? And I said, who? And he said, who wish? And I said, oh, that'd be great. It'll be great at this. Yeah, let's do that. So it was Jim's idea, and he came to us with it. And the problem with it, unfortunately, was that Jim was a control freak about this whole thing and he didn't want the novelization coming out too soon so that people could read the whole story he was worried about that so he stalled approving a final manuscript so it was about they, they couldn't get the book out until about four months after the film was released which is kind of useless because the movie novelization's primary purpose is to promote the movie and uh, so it didn't sell well um, sold under 50,000 first printing so that didn't do us much good as far as the, the world of literature is concerned. Got me an agent, uh, Peter Miller, uh, who is still my agent and uh, for literary works. And uh, But then, out of loyalty, when he did Terminator 2, he wanted the same composer, he wanted the same novelizer, he wanted, you know, and Bill was busy doing a script at the time, I forget which one, always doing Terminator 2. So he said, I got Bill on Terminator 2, and I, I was a story consultant in the first week on uh, on Terminator 2 trying to nail down the story elements uh, with Bill and Jim. And so Jim said, hey, let's write the novelization. You've already got an inside knowledge of what this thing's going to be before we even write it, so you can, you can map it out now. And I said, sure, okay. So I did, and that was really fun. The bad thing about that is the publishers, Bantam Books, said, uh, yeah, we have editors here, so if you make typos or you have uh, some grammatical errors or anything, we'll fix those. And I said, yeah, go ahead, but just don't change the style of the thing because I'm purposely using choppy sentences and I'm, I'm writing it in such a way that it has a certain stylistic quality. And uh, they said, yeah, yeah, we won't, we won't change that. And so I sent them the disc of my first draft of the novelization, which had about six or seven grievous, annoying typos. and uh, and I assumed they were going to fix it. And the book comes out, it's published, and I get a copy of the paperback, and every single typo is there. It's like they just took the disc and didn't change a damn thing and just published it. So it's like that's probably one of the few times that that's going to happen for an author where 
what you wrote goes right out there, and that's not always a good thing because it wasn't perfect. So I'm always annoyed when I when I look at that book. I go, okay, on chapter seven, there's this ridiculous typo that's confusing. It makes me look like an idiot, you know. It's just because my clumsy fingers. So and it was not corrected. And that has no, and whatever. and still to this day, that's something that's never been corrected. Never been corrected in every edition. It's the same. Wow. Even in Ford editions, they don't correct it, evidently. So I have a Russian edition, this beautiful hardback copy, and uh, someone from a Russian Terminator fan club said, but there's these puzzling things you say in such and such a page. I said, read it to me, read it to me. Oh, that's a typo. <laughs> so. Damn, that's crazy. So, so, so really, I mean, from that point on, were you kind of uh, hesitant with, uh, with, with publishers? Were you more... Um, like, did you kind well, of I was more careful to make sure when I gave them any manuscript in any form that it, it, I could get all the titles out. I couldn't make all the corrections I thought were necessary for the thing to be readable. But I didn't trust the editors. Now they don't even have editors anymore. In most books, they can't afford it. The publishing world is in extremely sad shape, generally speaking. There are exceptions, but, you know, certain books, certain authors that have brand names like Stephen King, they're still going to make money off that. But for the vast majority of books published, they don't make any money. They make a very small profit. And nowadays, it's the major change is, is pre-funding for both books and movies. They don't have uh, funding to pay writers to develop projects. You have to do it on your own dime. And uh, Is that why it's probably uh, uh, more preferred to self-publish? Well, self-publishing is a problem because, first of all, you're paying for it. So any mistakes you made or anything that should be corrected from a third person saying, hey, that's really boring, that part, that whole chapter, maybe you should take that out. You don't have that advantage of, of people irritating you by telling you what's wrong with your piece, which is sometimes a good thing because it makes it better if you have good criticism. But uh, when, once you self-publish, it's all out there the way you wanted it. That's fine. But now you have to distribute it. That's a whole separate thing that they don't. They charge you up the wazoo for, and they're not very good at. So, gotcha, gotcha. That's yeah. It seems like a. It seems like a. Because I've had a. I think I had a. Another person on that 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 uh, was self publishing, and uh, she said the same kind of thing that it's you know it's there's sort of pros and cons to both approaches. Um, uh oh, I think we might have. I think we might have lost him. Let me get him back on here. One second, guys. Don't want to break this this up here one second bear with me unedited Hi, you've reached Randall Frakes. Oh, no. Leave a message. I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Thank you. Let's see here. All right, one more time. Randall, what happened, man? Lost me? Where'd we, where'd we drop off? Oh, yep. There you go. Okay. I got you back. Um, I was just talking about, uh, we were, um, I think it ended when I was just saying that I had another guest on that was 
kind of given the pros and cons of um, both self-publishing and then going through a publisher. Um, and that's, uh, that's where we uh, kind of dropped off there. But um, it's interesting because uh, I had no clue that you actually had consulted on uh, Terminator 2, like for the actual film. Yeah. I've consulted on every one of Jim's projects, officially or unofficially, including Titanic and uh, Avatar. In fact, he asked me to co-write Avatar with him. And uh, the only reason why I didn't is because I had an ethical problem. The the script, as he was conceiving it and talking to me about it, was very similar to a script I'd already written called Lost Eden. They're almost identical in some key places. It just goes to show you how his mind and my mind overlap and how we're influenced by the same source material and uh, can be so similar. But um, his third act included a violent, you know, battle, just like in uh, Return of the Jedi, where there's like multiple factions fighting in different places simultaneously, the good guys against the bad guys, right? And it's like, first of all, that's really boring to me. After all these years of seeing it over and over again, I thought, well, can't we do something more creative? And then the second thing I thought was, when I wrote my script, Lost Eden, the whole idea was that there's a war at the end, but no one can die in it because to save this alien, which is like a billion years old and it's like almost like a god, he has connected psychically with all the people on the planet who are tearing up the planet, which is going to kill him. And these humans that have figured that out want to protect him and uh, because it could be a benefit to humankind. And... Uh, so they're trying to stop the exploitation of the planet, which is going to kill him. And uh, he says, okay, you can defend me if you want. That's your choice. But you can't kill anyone because if you kill anyone, I will die. So they have to try and defend the guy without killing anyone, which I thought was an interesting, ethical, dramatic problem in the first place. And second of all, so how do they do it? How do they, how do, they do it? And does anybody die? What happens when that happens? And so that was interesting to me. And that was fascinating. I said, Jim, why can't we end the avatar that way through some variation on that ethically and he said i can't it's a 300 million dollar movie and fox is already sold on having a huge battle at the end because they're used to star wars you know making money off star wars which has big battles at the end every time so i i, I said oh well i probably shouldn't write it with you and he goes why and i said because i'll be i've already written this other script i've already had my say creatively on the subject matter. And I just think I'd be unconsciously pulling towards that ending. And so I wouldn't be of any use to you. I'd be actually a drag on you rather than a creative help. And he said, okay. <laughs> so he wound up writing it with uh, uh, this female writer. I can't remember her name exactly. She didn't get credit, but she did a lot of work on it. And uh, the name like Lajo something, Kadrova or something. She's, she's a Greek ethnicity, I think, and uh, an American screenwriter. She's had other credits, and uh, she's very good, but um, I couldn't help it on it because of that ethical problem. And I remember Bill Wishes saying, are you freaking crazy? Just get that credit, and then you could go anywhere. And I said, yeah, but it's still a James Cameron film. It's still his idea, and it, and it ends in a way that I just, I just think it's too late in the world in mass media to model violent uh, conflict resolution. I think uh, it's more creative to come up with something that's convincing and plausible that would work so that we can have people getting used to that idea that you don't just pick up a gun to get get your way. You negotiate, you know, and you can get your way and get some of what you need. And the other person can too, and you don't have to kill anyone to do it. That's just my uh, 
liberal tree hugging hippie background coming to the fore. Now, piggybacking off of what you just said there, because I because I did want to kind of go into this territory is because you've done so many things that are so closely associated with Cameron is is that a is that a, a benefit to you or is that a detriment to you? Like, do you kind of like being in that shadow or do you wish that you could have had more opportunities to kind of really stand out as, you know, Randall Frakes. I mean, not that you haven't, but when you go through, obviously, you know, your, your credits, I mean, no, it's a completely, it's a completely different level when you're working on a James Cameron film because of who he is. I mean, he, his two models are break new ground and good enough. Isn't put those two things together and you've got a very difficult assignment. You're also working with someone who knows very certainly what he doesn't want but he's not quite certain of what he does want. And he uses writers to bounce ideas off of. So you're really not going to be that big a contributor because except that you're helping him, he's not in it. You're his echo chamber, you know, and he's able to see, okay, well, tell me, how would you do this? You tell him, and he goes, okay, that's, it's like Hitchcock used to say to his writers, well, that's the way they do it in the movies. You need to be more creative than that. Well, Jim would say similar things. He'd say, okay, well, that's, that's been done already in movies. That's, that's something you're remembering from some of the movie. Let's think of something more original and something more plausible, which is hard. You know, it's easy just to go into your memory and rip off bits and pieces of other things to solve your creative problems, but it doesn't make for a very satisfying end result. So he's always looking for perfection, and he says perfection is a moving target. So we got to like get on the game here. And uh, anyone who works with James Cameron is going to do better work than if they were doing it with some other person or, or by themselves. So I'm happy to have had the privilege and the honor and the, and the excitement of being challenged by working with James Cameron on any of the projects. Sometimes I was overwhelmed. Sometimes I just didn't do that good a job. Like on True Lies, we only had two weeks to write the first draft. The first week we did research on how to plausibly get nuclear weapons into this country. And, uh, and we saw how, how it was actually kind of plausible. That scared us. So then we only had a week to actually write the actual script. So we split. He had already written a treatment, so we split the treatment in half. I did the first half. He did the second half. And the end result was the script was about 300 pages long, which would have been like longer than Gone with the Wind. And he only had to make a two-hour, two-and-a-half-hour movie at the most. So we had to cut it. So naturally, he cut the first half because that's set up. Trim that to the bone. So most of the stuff I'd written, which wasn't that great anyway, was taken out. So, and I was supposed to get a credit on it, screenplay by James Cameron and uh, Randall Frakes. But the last second, the writers still said, "No, it's an adaptation. You got to credit the original screenwriters, the French screenwriters of the movie. This was based on La Total, and uh, and so we can't give you that screen credit. It was screen story by him and me, and." And they said, no, we're taking that out. You can't, you can't use screen story. Adapted, adapted by, but they waited till the last possible second because they were feuding with him at the time. He was going to quit, and they were feuding with him and trying to pressure him to stay in. And stupidly, did the wrong way, did it the wrong way. And uh, so at the last minute, they said, you can't use that credit. So had, you, had to lose that credit. Do you think that's bullshit? Because I mean, I think that's like total bullshit. Like you, you really helped bring that to to reality i mean even if it is a remake i mean it should technically be you know uh based on la total and then screen play or screen story however you want to credit it james cameron and randall frakes well it's a it's a credit that's been used before in similar circumstances where you're you're so changing the source material 
that you're creating so many new things, new elements, new characters, new situations. I mean, it was a huge scale-up. The original film was a, a sweet little thriller that was about a million dollars to make in Europe. And uh, nothing really spectacular. We had to scale it up for a Schwarzenegger action film, so we had to really go to the mat on that one. And, you know, think of things like Harrier jets and, and uh, nuclear explosions on islands in the middle of the, the whole chase action scenes on the uh, causeway in Florida, all that stuff was not in the original. The original was very, very low-key and small scale. And uh, so I'd say about 40% of True Lies is completely original. And then it's just based on the, the idea, the concept of a spy who has not told his family that he's a spy. And has been successfully getting away with that for a long time. They think he's boring, but he's actually saving the world. That was the concept that one of uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's team had saw that movie and they said, what if we made this for Schwarzenegger? And Schwarzenegger went to Jim and said, hey, can you do this quickly? And I got to make a decision as to what other films I'm going to commit to and I only have a couple of weeks. Can you do that? Jim said, well, we'll try. So we did. And like I say, at the last second, he had to cut a lot of the, the stuff I wrote in the first act, the first half. But um, I earned the credit and Jim wanted the credit. In fact, he said, I will hold up release of this picture until we we uh, negotiate with the screenwriters to get this credit or change the credit to adapted by get your name on there. And I said, Jim, you're crazy. Because you've already got $50,000 million in prints and advertising. It's supposed to come out in May. You can't delay this movie. That's ridiculous. And it's not that important to me. So I said, don't do that. And he didn't. So, But fortunately, any, there's three books on James Cameron. Um, Future Tense, I think, is the last one by Rebecca Keegan, uh, Los Angeles Times reporter, and uh, that was the most accurate of the three. And there's one about Titanic, making a Titanic and the making of James Cameron, and I forget the other first one was called. But um, in any case, they all mention what I did on True Lies. So it's not like nobody knows. Also, the original trailer has me in the credit block, and uh, the novelization back of the book has the credit block with my name on it. My name was on it until the last possible second. And they took it off the film. But yeah, so to answer your question, working with James Cameron, privilege, challenge, stimulating, happy to do it. But in the long run, I'd prefer to be known for the stuff I write myself, um, to you know, make my own statements and, and uh, tell my own stories. And I'm a little different from Jim. Jim is, is a, a kind of a grim, super commercial, dramatic, high-intensity action-adventure guy who his philosophy is that making movies is a war and living life is a war and that we're all in a Darwinian universe, the survival of the fittest. Whereas I'm more interested in portraying cooperation, the cooperative model, not the competitive model in nature, which is also in nature, where, where animals and people can join together, unify, and do amazing things. And so I want to celebrate that and I want to make that seem normal and natural um, as the Darwinian model, since both exist in the universe and both can work. So that's why my Lost Eden had that model and Avatar had the Darwinian model. Fascinating. Fa no, like it really is fascinating just hearing you, uh, you know, talk about all this and uh, um, uh, to kind of go to that credit thing because this is something that uh, a lot of people are 
uh, aware of, and I want to get your two cents on it. Um, I'm sure you're aware that uh, when the Terminator, the first film came out, there was that whole issue with uh, Harlan Ellison and, uh, you know, him basically claiming that uh, the screenplay was kind of ripped off from a uh, Outer Limits episode that he had written. And um, Paul Tolter. Yes. Yeah. And Mike um, Lancera and uh, Lloyd Nolan. And uh, there's no ripoff. In order to have a successful case for copyright infringement, you have to prove that they actually not only copied the concept, because you can't copyright concepts, but they actually copyrighted specific things, enough of them to make it infringement. Meaning that you wrote, wrote the scene exactly the same way from the source material and you didn't give them credit then they might have a case. Well, they settled out of court. They never took this case to court. I'm sure if they did, Tim would have won. And I helped them prepare the case. You cannot copyright time travel concepts. It's not copyrightable. Okay? In any one, it's a legal thing. And uh, Harlan Ellison just got away with it. And it's kind of funny because Jim makes jokes about it all the time. He says, yeah, I just moved. I'm, I'm in more to range of Harlan Ellison. Which <laughs> I think is funny. And I've met Harlan Ellison and uh, and talked to him separately from Jim. And uh, I haven't talked about this specific situation, but I know Harlan Ellison has always been very contiguous. Conti- He's always been legally suing people and, and protecting his territory. But I think he overstepped it on Terminator. But uh, kind of a fair thing came out of it because the credit that there, Jim was forced to put at the end of all later versions of Terminator is acknowledgement to the works of Harlan Ellison. And in a way, that's a fair thing because he did, he was inspired by the basic idea of soldier. But the thing that's always amused me is that the person who could have sued and probably won uh, is the guy that wrote The Man Who Was Never Born with Martin Landau, the Outer Limits episode, where he, he's a librarian in the future after a nuclear war and he travels back in time to kill the guy who started the nuclear war. And he finds up falling in love with his fiancee and he realizes he's come too soon and that that, that guy isn't born yet, but she's going to be the mother of it. So he, he's, for a while, he thinks he has to kill her. And they can't bring himself to do that. So then she winds up jumping aboard the spaceship. And he's trying to get back to his own time, having failed in the mission. And as they're traveling through time, because she's gone, so he was never born, time has changed. She disappears from the spaceship and he's left floating alone in space. And uh, that show, very poetic show, one of my favorite Outer Limits shows, Phantom Saver Porn, that is really more the concept of Terminator, an influence. There's another film called Cyborg 2087 with Michael Rennie, where he travels from the future into the past to correct a situation. And that's also, they, they could have had a case. So that's... To settle. Yeah, so it's... But, you know, that what I said in my, I, I prepared a long document about time travel stories and how they influence each other and, and uh, how they how each each one has its own elements that make it separate and and uh, isolated from the original material that people think is ripping off from. Uh, it's like building, like building a pyramid brick by brick. Each story is a brick, and you keep building and you change the shape of the thing until you complete it. And I said, there's all these other time travel stories that influenced Harlan Ellison. He has no lock on time travel stories. He was influenced and soldier by these three stories by Clifford D. Simak. And he was ripping off from in his uh, man, in his other one, uh, I can't remember the name of it, but uh, he did another Outer Limits episode, but he also claimed had something to do with Terminator. 
And I said, no, that was that was him ripping off five different concepts and making them his own. So oh, it was uh, uh, the one with Robert Culp. Uh, Demon oh, with a Glass it. Hand? Yes, it. Demon with a Glass Hand, yeah. Because that also involves time travel. And and so uh, my my argument was that if anyone is should be sued, it should be Harlan Ellison for ripping off these other things whole cloth. And that Jim's only influence and connection with Harlan Ellison is the soldier episode. The uh, character Michael Ancero plays, a soldier from the future, gives his name, his serial number. And Jim, out of deference to that episode, because he liked it and because he liked other limits and generally liked all the writings of, uh, you know, the author, Soldier, he he um, gave Reef, the character Reef, the same serial number. And that was just a pay-on. That was a tribute. It wasn't like I'm ripping you off, you know. I'm just saying, yeah, this is a story of similarity in the sense that the soldier from the future has come here to do a mission. But other than that, it's completely my thing, you know. I mean, there's no Terminator in uh, in anything Marlon Ellis wrote. There's nothing like that in any of his works. I have all his works. And I went through them for the legal case to prepare. And they just chickened out and Ryan Fisher just said, no, it's a cost more money if we actually go to court. And maybe we'll lose, so uh, it's probably safer just to settle. And they gave him some go-away money and that acknowledgement to the works of Harlan Ellison credit. And I told Jim, well, you know, in a way that's fair. First of all, it wasn't your money. And that, that credit is not that terrible. And, uh, you know, it's still your project. It's still your guy, your concept. So don't let it bother you. And it, he's more or less moved beyond that. But yeah, I don't know if Harlan, Harlan has or not. Well, uh, uh, I mean, he took it to the grave. He he recently passed away. Um, yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's it, it's really interesting about it all because it seems like, because this isn't the first time that, like, that's probably the most prolific case, but there's a, there's a current thing happening with another person. Her name's Sophia Stewart, and she claims that she's the creator of Terminator. And really what it kind of boils down to, in my mind, is that it seems like these are people who are... Uh, potentially not as satisfied with their own work and they find someone that is achieving incredible success and they try to glom onto that person and take the credit from them as if they're the creator of it. And it's just a real sad thing that Well, that's that partly it. I, I believe that's true of a lot of the cases. And the, the other element is that lawyers, when they come to a lawyer and say, hey, this story is kind of similar to mine. Do you think I have a case? They go, yeah, settlement money. Yeah. The lawyer's getting greedy, okay? But there's a third thing, which I think is a very real thing. It's called independent creation. And that happens all the time, where, you know, like E.T. is written and comes out, and everybody, their mother says, I wrote an E.T. I did something very similar. Well, yeah, because it was in the atmosphere. It was in newspaper stories. It was in, you know, someone had the same idea. Let's do a boy and his dog story, only it's an alien instead of a dog. I mean, these are common ideas that a lot of people will get simultaneously. And more than one person will write up something similar, and it's whichever one gets to the funding first, you know, it's fate. And uh, you remember there was a time, there was a year in Hollywood where there were four body change movies, the genre change movies. You know, there were four. Jim experienced this with, uh, he was the fourth to come out with the abyss of uh, underwater alien movies. There have been three before that. And I remember asking him at the time, I said, Jim, 
aren't you worried about this, that you're the last guy out with this concept? And he said, no. And I said, why not? And he said, because mine will be better. <laughs> I love it. I love <laughs> it. Of, kind of arrogance you need, you know, and it's true. It is what's better. But, um, and it was closer to the kind of thing that I would write where, where there's no violent re- resolution, conflict resolution. And, uh, there's a threat of violence, but it's never carried out. And, um, yeah, so in the case of, of Terminator, a sideboard from a feature, like I said, there was a movie called Sideboard 2087. It was like a, a B-movie that was made in the mid-60s. You know, the concept of a robot, de- Deathlock. I mean, you know, why isn't Marvel suing them for Deathlock? You know, because it's different. It comes, it, it's like coming to the same intersection creatively, but coming from a different pathway. Exactly. And so it, it's, it's, you know, there are a lot of similar things that may have consciously or unconsciously influenced Terminator. But I was there in the inception of it, and I know that I was probably one of the major influences by systematically analyzing what films had been successful for the previous 10 years. And that led us on to one thing led to another, to the cyborg from the future, you know? And that was the demands of, of the data we had that suggested to us what it had to be. So we weren't consciously being being inspired by any specific thing until later, it's later. Um, Jim said, Hey, I just saw this movie called Cyber Twenty Eighty Seven and I said, Yeah, and he goes, Yeah, it's a lot like Terminator. I said, Well let's look at it. So we looked at it and said, That's ah, not like Terminator. Whole different thing. And he said, Yeah, just the basic idea and I said, Don't worry about it. It's a movie hardly anybody remembers and you know, that was there. It was your it was your independent creation. My script Lost Eden is so much like um Avatar, the first Avatar but it's it's bizarre sometimes. I mean, just like things like the uh, the tree of life that has tendrils that you can connect to and have uh, information and data given to you. I have that too. And I never talked to him about Avatar. He never talked to me about Lost Eden. We just did it out of time. Now, that's interesting that you br- uh, bring up that, that title because going through your filmography and uh, uh, uh I'll be completely honest. I'm on Wikipedia. So, I mean, pff, Wikipedia, I mean, that's the answer right there, but it's, there is no lost Eden in terms of, so like, is this sort it of was a, never made, oh, okay. it was never made, gotcha. it was never made. It was written. Agents tried to sell it. It almost got made as a mini series. And my current agent is trying to sell it as a limited TV series for cable right now, which I think is a good way to go. But, um, it hasn't been made. There's a lot of things that have been made. I wrote a script for him called screaming steel for James Cameron, about uh, biker gangs in the future, but they don't ride cycles. They ride uh, pocket rockets, he called them. So they're, driving, they're, they're flying around in these things. And the son of one of the biker gang, gangs has a policeman father, and the biker gangs have uncovered corruption in the L.A. Police Department. And so they're trying to, like, out it, and the police are trying to say they're just criminals and we have to, like, kill them. And I wrote that script called Screaming Steel, and that almost got made three times, and it was rewritten by about six different writers after I did the first draft. But it's never never seen the light of a projector and probably never will. It's just the way the cookie crumbles, you know? Yeah. It's... Jim himself wanted to do uh, for uh, several remakes of classic science fiction films, and Fox wouldn't go for it. So, you know, even Jim can't get all his films made. I mean that just I mean that just says it all right there. I mean talk about someone that uh you know that whole famous thing with Titanic when he was like I'm the king of the world. I mean that guy is you know arguably the most powerful 
uh, filmmaker alive. I mean, anything he wants to do, it sounds like just like off the top of your head, it would, it, it would seem as though he could just create anything, but, uh, you, you know, it seems like even, even he has, uh, you know, has to go. He surprised me once he said, look, I got this project with Harrison Ford attached to star. And this was about uh, 15 years ago when Harrison Ford was still a name to be reckoned with. And, uh, it's a it's a very realistic portrayal of how you would do a rescue mission in space with the current technology. And I said, that sounds cool. What, what, what's he called me, told me, and I said, uh, when are you going to make it? He says, 20th Street Fox won't make it. They won't fund it. And I said, why? And he said, they said, the public is bored with space. Oh, and I said, this from the company that made Star Wars? He right. Goes, yeah, they, they don't want reality. They want fantasy. They only want science fiction. They want fantasy. And I said, you're kidding me. Well, can't you go right elsewhere with this? And I said, yeah, Paramount said they'd fund it, but I don't want to do it with Fox. But I'm mad at Fox. So they have, they've had some rough times because the, the, the executives at Fox, you know, they have their reasons. It's not like they're all the bad guys. They have their reasons why they don't want to do a certain film at a certain time. And they may not tell you the truth. They may make up reasons because they don't want you to know that they're out of funding for that year. And they don't want anyone to know that something's going wrong that their stock will go down. So they give you some bogus reason. And that's not the real reason. So I don't know what the real reason was for that, but what Jim told me, they said. And also, I was assigned to do Alien, I think it was Alien 5 or 6, I can't remember which one, where uh, this space team has been out in space for a long time, come back to Earth, and it's like in the future now, and uh, and the whole planet is overrun with aliens. And they they got to figure out how to, how to kill them all without killing the planet. And uh, and I said, uh, okay, but are they actually going to make this movie? Because it's not a cheap movie. He said, no, and I'm not even director. I'm going to executive produce it. And I said, are they going to do that? And he goes, yeah, they promised me. And I said, but I heard they were making Alien versus Predator. And he said, that would kill the whole franchise. But I told him if they do that, then we're not doing Alien 5 with me. And I said, Okay. So I find out from a mutual friend of mine, Alec Gillis, who's one of the teams that worked on all the alien movies, doing the alien queen and doing all the big alien puppets and things. He says, yeah. I said, hey, Alec, what are you doing? He said, I'm working on Alien versus Predator. And I said, you what? He said, yeah, I'm making the alien queen again, the biggest, best version of the alien queen. I went down to the shop and looked at it. And I, so I called up Jim and I said, Jim, they're making Alien versus Predator. They're funding Alec to make the queen. And he said, they what? So he went back to Fox and he, he outed them on that. And uh, they said, yeah, well, we got to do it because we made commitment and blah, blah, blah. He said, you made a commitment to me too. So Alien 5 is off. Well, that was the fish that got away, the big fish. Because I was going to be the sole screenwriter on that one. Now, I've had two big ones that got away from me. Forbidden Planet remake that Jim Cameron and Steven Spielberg were going to executive produce. $200 million movie. And they were going to use my script. And um, the person that owned the underlying remake rights was crazy. And when she heard that Spielberg and, and uh, Cameron were both interested in executive producing, she upped the price way out of line. And so Spielberg said, Jim, let's just lay back and wait until she loses the option. We'll just buy it for a proper price. And then we'll make it. And then eventually started got started on Avatar. And now he's in the Avatar business for the next three or four years. So you can't do it. So that one got away from me. Do you ever find like that you're just really kind of um, that uh, like, have you ever been in that position where you almost gave up where you were just like, I'm done. Like this Hollywood system is, 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 is really backwards. Like, did, like, did you ever find yourself kind of face to face with that dilemma? 
flat backwards is irrational. It's based on emotion rather than actual content. It's based on deal making. It's based on perception. It's based on things that don't have anything to do with making a good movie. So every single day I've thought that at least one time during the day. But I love writing so much I can't stop. I literally can't stop. I wake up every day and I got an idea. I got to go and write it down. I write it down. That leads to write something else. Expand that idea until finally I realize it's been six months and I've got a script. Now I got to try and sell it in the marketplace. It's almost impossible to sell unless you are Stephen King or you are Steven Spielberg or James Cameron. So, yeah, I think about that every single day, but I don't think I'll ever do it. And do you, you know, I'm of retirement age, but I'm still going to write until I drop dead. I'm going to be the energizer bunny as far as that goes. That's awesome. Uh, do you uh, do, uh, you kind of like doing those uh, projects, like the one that you did, uh, which I think is your most recent collaboration with Cameron, where you did uh, the companion book to his story of science fiction on AMC? Do you do you kind of like those uh, approaches? Because it's... Yeah, I, I lobbied to get on that one because I said, Jim, if there's ever anything we do together, it should be this thing because this is the foundation of our careers as science fiction writers. You know, we should, we should, you know, you know what I know about all this stuff, what I can bring to it. And he said, well, I want you to interview me. And I said, oh, okay. Because I know you know, you know me well enough to ask the right questions, not right, ask stupid questions. I said, okay, I'll do that. And he said, and then you can write the forward and talk about how science fiction influenced you and me personally. So I couldn't turn that down. There was very little pay in that, interestingly, but, um, I don't get any of the residuals from the book sales, but um, I did get to get my say in there. Uh, damn, I was going to say, because I have my copy right behind me, so I was going to say I supported Randall Frakes, but you don't actually even get any kind of royalty from it? Do not. Damn. Get good credit. I'm listed first. Yes. You never really refer to the book, but that's, you know, and I did write a substantial amount of it, but there's a lot of other contributions from really good writers, so. That's a really great book. I recommend that book to anyone who has any interest in film in general and science fiction specifically. I do too. Especially yes. science fiction literature. And because uh, I mean, it tells it like it is, and you get all kinds of insight about how Jim thinks and why he does science fiction the way he does. Yes, it's a it's yeah definitely a beautiful book, and uh, it's a great series too. That uh, is, uh, you can find it like on Apple, iTunes, and uh, and all those places. It's a and you know it has that huge. Uh, reproduction, full page reproduction of that large painting he did for Xenogenesis. Yes. Together. Yep. Uh, has all the major scenes. And you'll notice in one of the sections it has uh, a guy running in front of a tank that looks a lot like the tanks from Terminator's future scenes. That's because the design, he just reused that design from that short film uh, for the, the Hunter Killer tanks in Terminator. The same thing. That's so funny. Yeah, it's great. It's awesome little bits of trivia that you'll find in that book, and uh, uh, it's definitely a great achievement. So definitely, uh, you know, congratulations on that, and 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 congratulations on all the success. Though, really, the kind of last thing I definitely wanted to ask you is, especially with the this like the current situation that the entire world is is facing right now with COVID nineteen, it's really impacting the entertainment industry, and I mean, literally every conceivable film from post-production to ready to be released has been delayed. And um, I'm curious what you think, once all this is said and done, what do you think the future of the entertainment industry is going to be? Do you think it's going to see a radical shift in terms of... Well, I, I personally believe, and I could be wrong, but I believe this is a huge overreaction. And, and 
and that something is afoot politically underneath, and I'm not going to be a conspiracy theorist to go off the deep end, but I'm saying something reasonable, but but not quite fully revealed is going on underneath all this. And the upside to it, there is an upside to it. The downside to it, of course, is all these people are losing their income. You know, not just in the film business, but every place else. And the economy is taking a dive. And this goes to show you how fragile our economy is and why we should just rely on capitalism as the sole way of making a secure income for everybody in this country. You know, it's certainly done well. Capitalism is a great system, done correctly and ethically. But it's rarely done that way. So we have to develop other means and ways of, of ensuring people survive through crises like this. And so the upside of that is that maybe now that's under in the planning, you know, people are realizing how fragile we are, how vulnerable we are. So that's good. Okay, but the other upside thing for the film business specifically, I think, is right now, what are producers doing? Something they hardly ever have time to do or the inclination to do. They're actually reading scripts. They're reading material to prepare for the time when the dam breaks and everybody can start funding movies again. They're looking for material because they got nothing else to do. They're bored, you know, out of their pants. So they're 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 reading now. So this is the time that for writers to submit. It's your agent to submit anything, especially for television right now, because they need to build up the larder for the next season. And uh, so now is a good time to be read. Don't even look at people who are not at the top anymore, looking desperately for something interesting they can develop and make a hit. And probably so with, the, with not a upside. huge budget. But that's only mostly for writers. It doesn't help actors. It doesn't help uh, directors. It doesn't help people who actually have to make stuff. Yeah, exactly. And probably they're looking for like the cheapest, you know what I mean? Like, like probably like the, the independent circuit is really going to start to take off. You know what I mean? Like to really find that, that, uh, that cheapest as possible approach to, to bringing this to, uh, to the big screen. You know what I mean? Like that's probably where, a lot of this is going to transition to, I think. So studios like well, the, and also production producers are scrambling and changing locations. For example, Avatar Two, a large amount of it was scheduled to be shot in New Zealand. In New Zealand, they don't have a lockdown yet because this country is so sparsely populated, and where they're shooting is not a super populated place. So they're able to continue pick, picking up some shots for Avatar Two in a foreign country, which isn't under the lockdown rules we are here but um, if you're stuck here then yeah you're not going to be able to make a movie here so um for the time being anyway but you know this is all healthy because it shakes things up it changes in subtle ways it'll change first of all it will make people who are an older generation and insecure about ordering things online because they have to order things online now they're going to get used to that and they're going to see online businesses profit from that and expand and grow as more and more people are used to it and uh, don't mind it. But um, yeah, there's there's always a silver lining in everything. During the Depression in the 30s, billionaires were made from uh, very ruthless and clever investments in a time when everyone else was panicking. So there's always some good to come out of something bad. Yeah, I, 
I definitely agree. And uh, it's some it's something that I saw somewhere. I forget who said it, but uh, someone said that James Cameron had predicted the future. And that's why uh, he uh, he wanted to release Avatar in 2021 or uh, Avatar 2 in 2021, because he saw that this was all going to be happening. And of course, you know, it's far fetched, but it's uh, it's a funny little thing to think about. Like, that's maybe why he uh, has been, you know, in production on the sequel to Avatar 2 for so long that he saw this 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 pandemic well, there's more practical reasons why it's taken so long yeah he wrote uh, he wrote he said okay i want you to ramrod some writers for me and uh, supervise and we'll do it like a comedy show where you have teams of writers come in and write each sequel we're going to write three sequels and we're just gonna you and i are going to write the bible one and then they're going to use that bible and do it for a tv series to write the sequel feature film and uh they did and they were all brilliant teams, but um, he didn't like what they wrote because they weren't what he was thinking, specifically. He has to direct it. And he thought they missed the mark here and there. So I said, well, Jim, you got to do it then. There's no way you can escape it. So he had to sit down and rewrite all three scripts, which took a long time. And then he had some problems with it. He called me in to consult. I helped him figure out how to do the order of the plots. Oh, stop. My dogs. My dogs barking at anything remotely anywhere in the world uh, but anyway <clears throat> so I worked with him on that and I said okay uh, do do two uh, do two is three and, and three is two it'll be a better better uh, pickup after the first avatar and he agreed to do that now in the final analysis I haven't been working on that for over two years so I have no idea what shape it's been and what he's doing but he's changed his mind he's probably rewritten lots of it so I don't have anything to do with it the last couple of years, but and I don't talk to him about it. I only talk to him about once every couple of months, and usually it's an email because it's so busy lately. That was but he did offer me another consulting job. He wouldn't tell me what it was for. So we'll see. I was I was going to ask. I was going to say, um, uh, how do you uh, directly communicate with him? Is it more of just email now? Email, email. Okay. Generally. Occasionally, I put a call in. But yeah. I don't like to bug him. You know. Yeah. But so, look, if you need any help, just call me. You know, so that he doesn't feel like I'm pressuring him or anything. I'm just there as a, as a possible resource he can use when he needs it. Does that ever cross your mind that, that, that you're in direct contact with literally like one of the most prolific people on the planet? Yeah, I helped him. I helped educate him to be that. Right? So yeah, I take exactly. some pride in that. I, I've mentored many writers who have gone on to do Big things like Josh Olson wrote The History of Violence and got nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay his first time out. Uh, I mentored him. We wrote several scripts together and I taught him some stuff. And now he's brilliant on his own. But uh, the same thing happened to Jim. Jim was like, uh, I don't know how to do this. I said, Jim, just do this, do this. Said, okay, I got it. And boom, went off. Now I learned from him. You know, So it's like, um, yeah, I think about that and I think about how, how, Close I am to a major player, historically one of the biggest filmmakers in history. You know, he's right up there with Spielberg and Lucas, and, and in some ways that he's a little more original, maybe beyond them, and certainly made as much money as anybody on the planet with mass media entertainment. But and he's not done yet. But you know, it's, it's a competitive game. There's always someone snapping at your heels, coming up behind you full of ideas and been bigger and they should have a shot because they're going to bring something. 
under the table. Exactly. Yes. And uh, you're definitely one of the unsung heroes. And uh, look, I don't want to take up any more of your time because I know that uh, it's probably very valuable. And I really appreciate that uh, we were able to finally, after all these months, um, make this work and and, and collide together and uh, get you on here. And it was it was a great talk, and uh, I'd love to stay in contact with you and uh, see what uh, happens with Avatar two and three and four, and and hopefully you get that uh, that much deserved you know actual credit that you'll see on like a DVD or a Blu-ray or a or a you know whatever a future copy is a 4K copy or whatever. Well, let me give you a little pat on the back. I've seen some of your sites and and in the past, and and uh, your persistence in getting me and. I think you're a great asset, unofficially, to the James Cameron story and and exploring the different avenues for how the film got made, what the film is about, what it means about artificial intelligence, what is the warning, the excitement of it, the fun of it, and and your love of movies, which comes through in everything you do. Thank you. you. You're a a brother in arms. We who look upon film as not just some pastime, something to eat popcorn through, you know, but something that actually moves us, shows us things we never thought of before, and actually has an impact on our lives, our personal lives. Those are great movies. And they could be something as silly as a musical, like The Music Man, or they could be something else that just touches our heart and makes us better people because of it. That's, that's the art and excitement of movies, and you're hooked into that. So I celebrate you. Thank you, Randall. That's uh, that means a lot. So um, definitely, like I said, want to stay in contact with you. So I uh, I uh, hope you have a great rest of your day, and uh, I hope you continue writing. If you were writing today, uh, go back to that writing. <laughs> I am. I am. Believe me. <laughs>